Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Chicago on March 1st, 2012. The recording features Taylor Molly, Marilyn Nelson, Molly Peacock, Roger Bonera Guard, and Mark Doty. You will now hear Alison Grinusi from Blue Flower Arts provide introductions. Jared offered to be my podium, but I'm going to try to <laughs> work out with this microphone. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming to our poetry event today, Page Meets Stage. As Jared said, my name is Allison Granusi. I'm the uh, founder and president of Blue Flower Arts, a literary speakers agency. We represent poets, authors, memoirists, uh, filmmakers for their readings and appearances. Um, please visit us, if you like, down in booth 400. And I'm very delighted and honored to bring you this dynamic ensemble of Blue Flower Arts poets. Taylor Molly, Roger Bonaire Agard, Mark Doty, Marilyn Nelson, and Molly Peacock. Yes, give them a round of applause. It's my great pleasure to introduce Taylor Molly, who will then tell you a little bit more about Page Meet Stage and introduce the rest of the poets. The New York Times calls Taylor Molly a ranting comic showman and literary provocateur. He is one of the most well-known poets to have emerged from the Poetry Slam movement. He was one of the original poets to appear on the HBO series Russell Simmons Presents Deaf Poetry, and he was the Armani-clad Armani villain of the documentary film Slam Nation. His poem, What Teachers Make, has been viewed over 10 million four million times on YouTube, and it has become the title of his newest book, which will be published later this month, What Teachers Make, in praise of the greatest job in the world is now an inspirational book of essays and a passionate defense of teachers and the, and the nobility of teaching, drawing on Taylor's experiences in the classroom and as a traveling poet. Today, Taylor Molly and the Bowery Poetry Club of New York City come to AWP with the acclaimed Page Meets Stage series. Performance poets and page poets are paired together and go head-to-head, -head, poem for poem, revealing the playful give-and-take between the page and the stage, and bringing a spirit of camaraderie and play to the reading of poetry. Please welcome our MC extraordinaire, Taylor Molly. Whoever says he knows poetry's definition certainly doesn't know it. Because the truth is, there are as many definitions as there are people who call themselves poets. It's what oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. The best words in the order that is also best. A prayer to the otherwise unprayable. That which is left when all else has ended. A celebration of things only vaguely apprehended. It is the art of saying the unsayable. All poetry is man's rebellion. It's about the beautiful futility, or it's the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings recollected in times of tranquility. That was Wordsworth. 
And for what it's worth, he came close to explaining what words can be worth, which is to say you could do worse. <laughs> poetry is jazz. It's the devil's wine with extra sizzle. All poetry is man's rebellion against being what he isle. For shizzle. It's the rhythmical creation of beauty in words. It's what ideas would be if they didn't fly like birds. It's a kind of literary mirror, a way to make things clearer. Poetry is both the substance abused as well as the key to recovery. A poem itself is therefore a kind of literate act of discovery. I'm not saying I understand it. It's a mystery. Plato was right when he said poetry is nearer vital truth than history. That's truth with a capital T. Not the facts, but the truth as you know it. That's one of the most exciting aspects there is to being a poet. You can rewrite your own life and make yourself sound smarter than you actually are. You can constellate the night sky of your own life and make yourself a star. You can make yourself sound wittier, sexier, more alive. You can pretend you said, teachers make a goddamn difference, when the truth is you said, we make 27.5. It's what oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. The best words in the order that's also best. A prayer to the otherwise unprayable. It is that which is left when all else has ended. A celebration of things only vaguely apprehended. It is the art of saying the unsayable. Good afternoon and welcome to Page Meets Stage, everybody. Thank you very much. Page Meets Stage. The very first pairing of Page Meets Stage was in 2005 when Billy Collins and I met back when the series would co was called Page Versus Stage. Our particular pairing was called The Final Smackdown. <laughs> the format has always been to go back and forth, poem for poem, back and forth. It's not a competition, it's not a slam, there's no winner, there's no loser. Poetry is the winner. In the words of Bob Holman, the owner of the Bowery Poetry Club, it is the job of page meet stage to figure out whether the place of poetry is on the page, in the air, whether it is supposed to go in one ear and stay there. Now we always choose poets, one of whom is ostensibly a page poet and one of whom is ostensibly more of a performance poet. But I don't want you to actually read too much into the labels, because the truth is we always, and when I say we, the other curator of Page Meets Stage is Marie Elizabeth Molly, and Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz has also put in job. Thank you very much for all of your help with this. We always choose poets who are equally accomplished on both surfaces. All the poets we choose could really be either page or stage, and in fact some of them have done the series twice, representing page one time and stage the other time. The four poets we have today, in the first pairing, going back and forth for two poems each, we're going to start out with ostensibly representing the page will be Marilyn Nelson, who has won... Allison, you made me look bad because my introductions are much shorter. Marilyn Nelson is, uh, has won numerous awards. She is a three-time national book finalist. She won the Frost Medal this year, and she will be aptly representing Paige. Give it up for Marilyn Nelson. <laughs> representing Stage 
in this first pairing will be Molly Peacock. Molly Peacock has six books of poetry, at least to her name. The Second Blush is published by Norton. She is a uh, in professor or a poetry mentor at Spalding University, and she was instrumental in starting the Poetry in Motion series of poems on the New York City subway. I'll introduce the next poets when it is time for their pairing. Please put your hands together for Marilyn Nelson and Molly Peacock to help us find the poetry that exists where Paige meets stage. <laughs> it's fabulous to look out here at everyone here. Um, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much, Taylor. Uh, thank you, Blue Flower Arts. Thank you, AWP. I know we're supposed to be going head to head, but Marilyn and I are going heart to heart. As I look out on this audience, I can see certain people um, who have lost sleep over a semicolon. And I am going to uh, address this poem to you. The Cliffs of Mistake. To know you're making a mistake. As you make it, yet not be able to stop is to step off a cliff, expecting to scramble backward and up through the air to stand on the outcrop you stepped from, even though it can't unhappen. As you backpedal wildly with the second step, looking far, far below onto the moraine of pain you anticipate later, which is now only the shock of recognizing the result. There's no leaping back from. Oh, God. And this is only a metaphor. <laughs> Might this be what metaphors are for? To say what it's like before you hit what it is. Well, I'm going to try to connect with the idea of the semicolon. Uh, <laughs> this is a poem which tries to be one sentence. So there are a couple of semicolons in it. Uh, it's uh, 
It's, uh, it's called Valley High Calls Mama. As I was putting away the groceries I'd spent the morning buying for the week's meals I'd planned around things the baby could eat, things my husband should eat, and things, excuse me, things my husband would eat, and things I should eat because they aren't too fattening, late on a Saturday afternoon after flinging my coat on a chair and wiping the baby's nose while asking my husband what he'd fed it for lunch and whether the medicine I'd brought for him had made his cough improve, wiping the baby's nose again, checking its diaper, stepping over the baby who was reeling to and from the bottom kitchen drawer with pots, pans, and plastic cups, occasionally clutching the hem of my skirt and whining to be held. I was half listening for the phone, which never rings for me, to ring for me, and someone's voice to say that I could forget about handing back my students' exams, which I'd had for a week, that I was right about the wasteland, that I'd been given a raise, all the time <laughs> wondering how my sister was doing, whatever happened to my old lover, and why my husband wanted a certain brand of toilet paper, and I wished I hadn't, but I bought another fashion magazine that promised to make me beautiful by Christmas, and there wasn't room for the creamed corn, and every time I opened the refrigerator door, the baby rushed to grab whatever was on the bottom shelf, which meant I constantly had to wrestle jars of its mushy food out of its sticky hands, and I stepped on the baby's hand and the baby was screaming and I dropped the bag of cake flour I bought to make cookies with and my husband rushed in to find out what was wrong because the baby was drowning out the sound of the touchdown although I had scooped it up and was holding it in my arms so its crying was inside my head like an echo in a barrel and I was running cold water on its hand while somewhere in the back of my mind wondering what to say about the wasteland and whether I could get away with putting broccoli in a meatloaf. <laughs> when suddenly through the window came the wild cry of geese. Thank you. Now, Marilyn and I uh, have known each other for a long, long time. I promised her I wouldn't say how long. Um, uh, and I, uh, the first poem uh, I read of Marilyn's, uh, all right, um, I read in, uh, when, when, we, when we met a long, long time ago. Um, and it had a, a, the image in it of a little fish. She may not even remember this. Oh, she does. And, um, uh, and I wondered what would happen, uh, to that poet, um, who, uh, we were at a conference, um, sp sponsored by a spiritual organization. And I wondered what would, uh, what spirit would enter that fish, um, and, and how it would swim. And it is a huge pleasure for me, uh, to be standing up with her, 
on this stage, uh, going back and forth. Uh, we did not prepare this, um, but I have a poem also about food, uh, also about love, um, also in a frantic narrative, and so it's called A Favor of Love uh, for Marilyn. Oh, it's got a husband in it, too. <laughs> Thank you for making this sacrifice, I say to my husband as I run to Kim's market. Never mind what the sacrifice is. Sacrifices between husbands and wives are private and fill a person with simple healing water. Kim's buzzes with Sunday night customers as into my plastic basket go watercress, asparagus, garlic, pecans. When a girl throws herself through the plastic door flaps, tears streaming down her face, and her boyfriend catapults past the troughs of oranges, screaming, water, water. And Mr. Kim peers down his quizzical nose, and Mrs. Kim stands in mountain pose, openly hating that girl for dying of an overdose among the lemons, mangoes, papayas, and limes of the country of her family's origins, plunging among the plums and dying there, the color of a plum beneath her dark hair, for the girl is turning purple. From the back of the store by the water, the boyfriend shouts that she's swallowed a lollipop head. Now she is almost the color of an eggplant. And Mr. Kim by the register is asking her, should I call 911? In a pleasant, insistent whisper, should I call 911? Call 911, I say to him as a big sound shaboom from her, but only a bubble squeaks at her lips. And I'm raising my woolen arm, aiming for her shoulder blades, where I whack and whack her again. And no lollipop pops out, but sound bellows out. And like idiots everywhere, her boyfriend shouts, calm down, calm down, forcing water into her throat, which must help dissolve the candy, my back slap dislodged. Where's that choking victim's poster you're supposed to hang? The boyfriend demands of Mr. Kim. I'll cancel 911, he says. Where is that lady? The sobbing girl is asking. Right here, 
I am right here behind you. I am putting endive in my basket as she grabs me in a bear hug and her face has a human color and it's a hard face, long and horsey. Oh, mommy, she shouts. As my sister was dying, she called me mommy. So now I stand in mountain pose. And she smiles up from a pile of plastic baskets. My name is Marisol, she says. My name is Molly, I say, afraid she might hear those L's as M's. Well, thank you, and thank my boyfriend for saving my life. No, well, don't eat any more lollipops, I say closing the cosmic circle begun at breakfast when my husband made the promise I still won't reveal grown human beings making sacrifices return to the universe a favor of love. Uh, this is more difficult than I than I realized. <laughs> I didn't bring a whole lot of poems. Um, I'm going to read a poem which I think is also about uh, passing years together. Molly and I have known in each other indeed for many years. Uh, and about sacrifice. This is a, a poem from a book about a village that was founded in 1827 north of Manhattan. Uh, by a group of free African-American people. Uh, they bought land and started a village called Seneca Village, which lasted for about mm, 30, 35 years and was just demolished in the construction of Central Park. So my book, uh, Seneca Village, um, tries to tell the story of the, the village, uh, the people who lived in the village, and this time period. And this is a poem in the voice of a woman named Nancy Morris, uh, whose name I found in the census. She was a widow. This takes place in 1838, and it's, uh, it's kind of about the Underground Railroad, but it's also about being a woman of a certain age. 
It's called Conductor. When did my knees learn how to forecast rain and my hairbrush start yielding silver curls? Of late, a short walk makes me short of breath and every day begins and ends with pain. Just yesterday, I was raising my girls. Now I'm alone and making friends with death. So let the railroad stop at my back door for a hot meal. What do I have to lose? The Lord has counted the hairs on my head and made a little space under my floor. All I ask of life is to be of use. There'll be time to be careful when I'm dead. Birth is a one-way ticket to the grave. I've learned that much slowly over the years, watching my body age. Time is a thief, and what we give away is all we can save. So bring on the runaways. I know no fear. Let life have meaning if it must be brief. Thanks. Marla Peacock and Marilyn Nelson. We will see them again. They will switch partners. I forgot to mention that the regular Page Meet stage happens on the third Wednesday of every non-summer month at the Bowery Poetry Club in New York City. If you come over to the book signing table after the show, if you're a New Yorker, I'll give you a, a card that shows the next couple of pairings. Now, the boys' turn. Ostensibly representing the stage will be Roger Bonaire Egard, a two-time National Poetry Slam champion, one of the original poets on Deaf Poetry Jam, the author of Gully, a Cave Canem fellow, and a former student of Marilyn Nelson. Ostensibly representing the page will be Mark Doty, whose 2008 book, Fire to Fire, New and Selected Poems, won the National Book Award. He is currently a professor at Rutgers University. Put your hands together for Roger Bonary Guard and Mark Doty. What to do, AWP? <laughs> Live from Bedford Stuyvesant, the livest one, representing BK to the fullest, notorious BIG. The night Biggie died, I, 28, dreadlocked, taut, on fire, 175 pounds, I, fast and angry and in love, and Biggie cruising Wiltshire. 
I was kissing a woman and then another. Her tongue was incandescent and Biggie was notorious. I squared off with some dude. Biggie's who shot here blared out the speakers. Baggy blue jeans and tongue loose boots. I barked. I threw my hips into a deep far corner of the bass groove. I buried $20 in the juke. Biggie nodded to the beat on Wiltshire. Puff was at the wheel. Suge Knight in jail. My tongue in the mouth of a woman. Clinton was President George W. Bush. Coked up. Biggie promenaded Wiltshire. My torso a roll of wire. My fists stones. The night Biggie died, I rode the back seat between two women. I groped their thighs. They were leaning over the edge of my cavernous need. Their bodies taut lassos. Their nipples hard as ammunition. The radio crackled. We left the bar. The back seat stank sweat as Biggie royal waved down Wiltshire. I lied to get both women into my dorm. I pretended they both had my whole story. I loved them dearly. I hadn't learned how to say no. The night shots squealed on Wiltshire. Earlier, we'd stopped to eat. I blessed my food. Black olive omelette made the sign of the cross wherever we live. God is. Biggie being rushed to hospital wherever we fight. God is. Who knows? The science of the head nod like a bullet in weight. Biggie, a black sieve. The light of God moves through us, my tongue in the mouth of a woman. Wherever we die, God returns Biggie and a choir of sirens on his way. The love of God enraptures. She squeezed me frantic under the table. Biggie's farewell, the Brooklyn illist, unbelievable. The power of God protects us. We made a raucous hosanna of our bodies that night. We sat in the car stunned when we heard the news. We didn't know if to cry. Biggie shot in Los Angeles. I made a grave of a woman. New York held us all in our public weeping. Our eyes leaked blood. Our son, Biggie, dying on the streets of Los Angeles. I dying in the bed of a woman or she dying in mine. Love went to war in both our hearts. This is the music I became a man for. This is the second line funeral I danced to as Biggie lay I, born of the juke. I love it when they call me Big Papa. You should have heard the woman moan for Biggie that night. You should have heard the ropes rough ripping as we lowered our caskets into graves. Uh, Taylor, I don't know how to do this. Uh, so I got my work cut out for me, huh? Whoa. This is the music I became a man for. Whoa. Beautiful, huh? Um, I want to talk about music a little bit. Um, I, I love the work that Taylor does, bringing poets from you know, different parts of the spectrum together. Um, but to my mind, the term performance poet is sexy and, and kind of glamorous. And page poet... <laughs> no, come on. It sounds like the Xerox room, you know? I mean, it's just like this. You know, it's not gonna work. So this is my challenge to the audience. Let's figure out what to call that. Because think about the poems you love. Do they dwell on a page? Where are they? They're in the page some, but they're not. They move into you. They move into the body. They move into your way of understanding the world. They move into memory, you know? They become gifts that you give to other people. Okay, so. End of lecture. Uh, this is this is a music poem too, and um, it remembers the extraordinary 
trumpet player, Chet Baker, who um, had a way of singing, which, um, you know, in conventional terms, uh, wasn't great. I mean, he, he did not have a strong voice. It was a little wispy, um, but it could break your heart. And he would take a standard song, and he would put what I could only call line breaks in another place. My funny Valentine. You know? And that little silence made all the difference in the world. He was also a heroin addict for about 27 years, which is, um, you know, an achievement, really, <laughs> when you think about it. Um, and uh, he, he died um, in Amsterdam. He, he fell from a hotel window. Late inside. So this is called Almost Blue. And uh, part of the pleasure of this poem for me was trying to get as many lyrics from some of Chet's songs in here as I could. If Hart Crane played trumpet, he'd sound like you. Your horn's dark city, miraculous and broken over and over. Scale shimmered, every harbor flung hour and salt span of cable longing. Every waterfront, the night lover's rendezvous. This is the entrance to the city of you. Sleep's Hellgate, and two weeks before the casual relinquishment of your hold, light needling on the canal's gleaming haze and the buds blaring like horns. Two weeks before the end, Chet, and you're playing like anything, singing, stay, little Valentine, stay. And taking so long, there are whirls sinking between the notes. This exhalation, no longer a voice, but a rush of air, brutal from the tunnels under the river. The barges, late whistles, you're only here when the traffic's stilled by snow. A city hushed and distilled into one breath, yours, into the microphone and the ear of that girl in the leopard print scarf, one long kiss begun on the highway and carried on dangerously, the thunderbird veering on the coast road, glamour of a perfectly splayed fender, dazzling lipstick, a little pearl of junk, some stretch of road breathless and traveled into. Whoever she is, she's the opposite coast of you. And just beyond the bridge, the city's long amalgam of ardor and indifference is lit like a votive and then blown out. Too many rooms unrented in this residential hotel, and you don't want to know why they're making that noise in the hall. You're going to wake up in any one of the how many? 10,000 locations of trouble and longing, going out of business forever. Everything must go. Wake up and start wanting. It's so much better when you don't want. Nothing falls then. Nothing lost but sleep. And who wanted that in the pearl this suspended world is? In the warm suspension and glaze of this song, everything stays up almost forever in a long glide, sung into the vein. One note held almost impossibly, almost blue, and the lyric takes so long to open, a little blood blooming, there's no love song finer. But how strange the change, from major to minor. Every time we say goodbye, and you leaning into that warm haze from the window, Amsterdam, late afternoon glimmer, a blur of buds breathing in the lindens, and you let go, and why not? Mark Doty's the realist. <laughs> Thanks for saying that about page and performance, too, I feel like.
I just write poems and say them out loud. You can call that what the fuck you want. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I think I'm going to stay on that uh, heroin thread. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's a, I think there's a backbeat of music to like everything that happens in our lives. And uh, um, so I'm going to stay on that thread as well. Um, this is called Defense 1988. The epigraph is from Audio 2. Milk is chilling, gizmos chilling. What more can I say? Seven of you, thank you. <laughs> One, pick up. The drug dealers wear brightly colored velour sweatsuits open to the waist. Uh, let, me, let me say, I, I moved to New York from Trinidad in 87, so that's also in the background of this, okay. The drug dealers wear brightly colored velour sweatsuits open to the waist. Thick gold rope chains hang past their sternums. Forefinger rings mimic a skyline on their fingers, and the gazelles framing their faces under the brooding eaves of kangles are epic. They call me Youngblood, or sometimes Island Boy. And they throw down bills on the pickup games we run under the lights at 116th Street. My handle is decent. My passes are money on a dime. My jump shot, almost non-existent. But my hands, my hands are fast and I stay on my man like a bad rash. The first time I hang out with the Kennys, I'm scared to play but do so anyway. I am less than a year removed from home. These dudes ain't no joke. I'd better play D. Nobody on this court knows how sweet I am with a ball at my feet. How round and rich. My baritone throat. Two. Cocaine. The two Kennys want me to smoke crack with them. I won't, so they're pissed. Still. I pool my money with theirs, and in the back of an abandoned lot in an abandoned car, we take turns letting a crack whore suck us off. I return twice more to the lot, once without the Kennys, and I'm a little relieved when I do not find any of the disheveled, vacant-eyed women walking around and willing to make such an exchange. Later, in a cramped bathroom, I will smack $200 worth of cocaine out of Kenny's hand when he tries to force it down my nose and he'll want to fight me. The close quarters are the proverbial telephone booth in which I know I will bloody Kenny's whole body and for the first time I will fight and not be afraid of whatever United States Marines Kenny says he used to belong to fuck him. No one in this bathroom knows. How sweet I am with a ball at my feet. How round and rich my baritone throat. So I'm going to veer away from heroin just a little. Um, <laughs> you know, lest, you know, we stir up, we, we are triggering, you know, in, in this uh, reading. Um, but I want to talk about the shadow subject of heroin, which is death. One of its shadow subjects, anyway. And uh, this is a poem that has to do with that continual weight. And I want to read this especially for um, 
a, a young reader named Darius, who is here today. Darius is 11 years old, and um, he is a person who absolutely gets dogs and their presence, and also understands that they break our hearts because they can't live as long as we do. And what does it mean for us to attach ourselves to something that we know will disappear? So I wrote a lot of poems about dogs, poems in which uh, you know, a dog would do something interesting and I would use it as an occasion for a uh, psychological reflection or, or a sort of <laughs> bit of moral instruction, you know. And, and I did so many of these poems that I said, you're not allowed to write those anymore. No more of that. And then I got a new dog. Uh, and I still resisted until I didn't. So <laughs> the, the dog in this poem is, is named Ned. He is a now almost two-year-old golden retriever. This is called Deep Lane. June 23rd, evening of the first fireflies. We're walking in the cemetery down the road, and I look up from my distracted study of whatever an unfocused gaze somewhere in the direction of my shoes and see that Ned has run on ahead with the champagne plume of his tail held especially high, his head erect, which is often a sign that he has something he believes he is not allowed to have. <laughs> and in the gathering twilight, what is it that is gathered? Who is doing the harvesting? I can make out that the long horizontal between his lovely jaws is one of the four stakes planted on the slope to indicate where the backhoe will dig a new grave. Mm. Of course, my first impulse is to run after him, to replace the marker out of respect for the taboo that we won't desecrate the tombs, or at least for the particular knowledge of those who knew the woman whose name is inked on a placard in the rectangle claimed by the four poles of vanishing, well, three poles now, <laughs> and how it's within their recollection, their gathering, she'll live. Evening of memory, spark lamps in the grass. I stand and watch him go in his wild figure eights. I say, you run, darling, you tear up that hill. Mark Foti and Roger Boneri Guard, give it up for them. And they will be back very quickly because Mark just got off a plane. His plane was canceled and then delayed, and we weren't quite sure he was going to make it. And uh, I want to give a shout out to Derek Brown, who, the owner of Right Bloody Publishing. Derek, where are you? All right, he was. Get, Derek was going to stand up and take Mark's place. Please, if you have ever been a part of a page meet stage pairing, because I know there are some veterans, either scheduled to be one or have been one, would you please stand up now? In the back is Susan B. Anthony Summers Willett. John Sands will be doing it. Elena Bell. My eyes aren't that good. Who is that? Oh, and you, yeah, there's a satellite series that did it somewhere. And that is, I've never met you, but you're probably Therese Svoboda is going to do that. And Marie Elizabeth Molly is going to be next two weeks from yesterday at the Bowery Poetry Club. And Anis Mojgani, thank you so much, veterans, for doing that. Has this ever, has this ever happened to you? You work very, very hard on a paper for English Clash, 
Good luck with this one. <laughs> and still get a very glow raid on the paper, like a D or even a D equals. And all because you are the liverwurst spoiler in the whale-wide word. Yes, proofreading your peppers is a matter of the, the utmost impotence. <laughs> now this is a problem that affects manly, manly students all over the word. I myself was such a bed spiller once upon a term that my English torturer in my sophomoric year, Mrs. Myth, she said that I was never going to get into a good colleague. Wanted. That's all any kid wants at that age, just to get into a good colleague. <laughs> and not just anal community colleague. Because I am not one of those guys who would be happy at just anal community colleague. I need to be challenged. Challenged menstrually. So I bet this makes me sound like a stereo. Come up here, come up here. So I bet this makes me sound like a stereo, but I always felt that I could get into an ivory legal colleague. So if I did not improvement, then gone would be my dream of going to Harvard jail or prison you know in prison New Jersey so I got myself a spell checker and I figured I was on sleazy street but there are several missed aches that a spell checker can't can't catch catch for instant if you accidentally leave out word your spell checker won't put them in you and God for billing purposes only you should have serial problems with Tory spelling Your spell checkoff may end up using a word that you had absolutely no detention of using. Because, I mean, what do you want it to douche? It only does what you tell it to douche. You're the one who's sitting in front of the computer screen with your hand on the mouth going clit, clit, Clit. So do yourself a favor and follow these two Pisces of advice. One, there is no prostitute for careful editing of your own work. No prostitute whatsoever. And three, <laughs> the red penis, your friend. Thank you. And now, we are going to mix up, mix up the poets, mix up the partners, and bring you guys up for one more poem each. Please help me welcome back to the stage, reading in this order, Mark Doty and Molly Peacock.
So um, you, you have had this experience on purchasing a used book without um, really looking <laughs> inside, getting the book home and discovering that you have paid for somebody else's marginalia, which can never be ignored from that moment on. Right? So this happened to me with, uh, and it, it saddens me to tell you this, an edition of Leaves of Grass. Uh, I, I was in a hurry to teach a class. I grabbed a book off the bookstore shelf. I wanted to teach uh, section six of Song of Myself, which begins, a child said, what is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. So this is called, what is the grass? On the margin, in the used text I purchased without opening, pale, green, dutiful vessel, some unconvinced student has written in a clear, looping hand. Isn't it grass? <laughs> How could I answer the child? I do not exaggerate. I think of her question for years. And while first I imagine her the very type of the incurious, revealing the difference between a mind at rest and one that cannot. Later, I come to imagine that she had faith in language. That was the difference. She believed that the word settled things. The matter need not be looked into again. And he who'd written his book over and over, nearly ruining it, so enchanted by what had first compelled him, for him, the word settled nothing at all. In a book like that, um, uh, I began to find clues to uh, a role model that I discovered, uh, my 311-year-old mother, uh, Mary Delaney. And Mary Delaney um, invented collage in 1772, and I know you all have art books that tell you that Picasso and Matisse invented collage in the early 20th, 20th century, but in fact, there was a woman uh, uh, in a gown sitting at a table um, putting together hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of brightly colored pieces of paper uh, onto deep black backgrounds to make dramatic life-size portraits of flowers. And one of the reasons she did it is that she got stung on her foot by a net. And she had to remain still, and she was a busy person. And I'm going to read this next poem for every busy person in this audience, which I think is everyone, um, who hustled themselves to get in this room and whom I am so glad to see, as I am so glad to be reading with all of these poets, and particularly Mark Doty right up here today. Um, 
And they, dra they took her home. They carried her home. And the doctor said in 1772, she was 72 years old, by the way, um, when she invented a brand new art form. And I say, I, I say this to you in my seventh decade. Um, and um, uh, the, um, they made her sit still. And in that stillness, she watched a geranium petal drop to the darkened surface of the table below and picked up her scissors and started her life's work and a new art form in response. To me, that is such a poetic act. Um, it is the act of inspiration, the thing that seizes you when you least expect it, and in a moment of enforced stillness. Now, she, earlier in her life, um, uh, watched Hogarth paint a portrait of her friend. And Hogarth had a theory that the S was the most beautiful letter, and that it um, uh, was the shape that governs uh, the best art. Well, I guess I'm going to read you the 21st century short attention span version of S. I'm going to read you R. R and her egret. Never apologize, ever. R grew up straight in this resolve, unlike her curly lowercase mother who wobbled toward remorse all the time, rude her lousy job, repented her risable husband, not R. She shot straight up one side of life to her goal of never. But eventually she had to fall down into love and error. At the top of her line of resolve, she curved, rolled out, then reversed back, hoping to meet her oath of never, but making a capital P. A P? That wasn't her at all. She reeled back down in a line to her original ground, R. Je ne regrette rien! She tried to roar, but couldn't, for she was full of regret and Rien. Had she reached her essence, regret doesn't mean you change what you've done. It's a place the negative space a choice leaves. Like learning to see that the portrait of a girl in a hat can be reversed by the eye to the profile of an old woman. Regret? Just the flash of seeing both. R noticed her habit of shifting to one leg, lifting the other to hesitate partway under her body like an egret. She 
had a black and white bird inside her, standing on one leg, lifting the other to buttress her breast, the embodiment of an R, anchored, fishing, yet poised for flight, such a bird dipped and flew rapidly over the roiling ocean with a quick laugh. No irony. Ever rising into Rien without apology, according to its nature. Mary Peacock and Mark Doherty, give it up for them. And keep on clapping, coming back to the stage for one final poem meeting in this order. Marilyn Weston and then Roger Bonaire Egard. My first poetry reading, I was in kindergarten. I had no front teeth. And this brings it all back. And my poem was, I want to learn to whittle. <laughs> I just bring, brings it all back. I'm so pleased to be here and to be reading with this group of terrific poets. And I want to thank you for naming me as, a, as an influence. Thank you. I'm honored. So I'm going to read a, a poem from a, a book about an all-girls swing band that toured the United States during the Second World War. They were called the International Sweethearts of Rhythm. And uh, that's the title of my book, Sweethearts of Rhythm. It, it was published as a young adult book with wonderful illustrations by the great Jerry Pinckney. And um, this is one of the last poems in the book. It's a uh, uh, Let's see, I should say, my book, I, I do uh, history and uh, narrative, and uh, this, uh, this book um, tells those stories, but the speakers are the instruments in the band. Um, so this one is a, a poem spoken by the bass, and um, this is at the end of the war, and the bass is looking, looking back on its glory days. The poem is called... The song is you, and it identifies the bass player Lucille Dixon, Lucille Dixon on bass. Musical instruments sleep in the dark for several hours a day. The folks we belong to aren't always at play, so we can't be always at work. Our silence holds music, an undiscovered born, Horizons which have never been viewed, like undeclared love growing deeper in solitude, or the crystalline heart of a stone. My sleep, however, was more like a death in the dark of an attic for years, forgetting my existence and my glorious career with the best female swing band on the earth. I was the great love of my sweetheart's life. A man came between us. And soon I was in the dark, collecting dust and out of tune. They were pronounced man and wife. Instead of the charts, my gal read Dr. Spock. We played once a week, once a year. 
At first, from my closet, I was able to hear her family's continual of talk. My sweetheart's grandson brought me to the shop. Something has ruined my voice. Older, not riper, I'm a sorry old bass. But that doesn't mean I've lost hope that someone will hold me in a tender embrace, her arms will encircle my neck, someone will press her warm length to my back and pluck notes from my gut with her fingers caress. Thank you, Marilyn. That's great. Uh, I'm working on a collection of poems right now, uh, tentatively titled The Gospel According to St. Moses the Black, a Historical Mythology of Blackness. Um, but it started off by trying to look at the history of violence and the development of steel pan music out of Trinidad and parallel it with the history of violence on the hip-hop movement. Um, so a, a little bit of background. This next poem is in Trinidadian dialect. So if you don't understand what I'm saying, that's why this time. Um, uh, and it's in the voice of a kind of an iconic figure out of Trinidadian culture, and that is the pan tuner, um, the man who tunes the pans and within the context of the history of steel pan, who, uh, especially in the 70s and 80s, like every day invented new kinds of uh, pans with new sounds. Um, and and uh, traditionally, the, the steel pan was made out of discarded oil drums, which is, um, you know, a whole other metaphor. So this is called The Pan Tuner Answers an Important Question About His Livelihood. If the bush calls, then the bush is my master. If the sea call, then the sea, the sand. But it's neither bush nor sea calling, it's steel. I could hear everything in the steel. The steel could hold everything. My mother bawling and forever banning she belly. The youths them restless and suiting woman in the street. Strips in when they do answer. The steel have all that. Plant garden? Nah, man. Nothing in the bush hold noise like steel. I'm not planting no garden. You hear that noise? You hear mommy flipping the roti on the tower? You hear Miss Mavis bawling behind them hardened children? You hear Gittens hunting dogs barking? The steel have all that. Every now and then, Daddy take the punching rum too serious, not often, and he come home and pelt a lash behind Mommy. Sometimes he connect and Mommy bawl out, Oh, God! Sometimes he miss and fall down, and his Mommy shouting at him, You wretch, you! And if I lean close to the double tenor, I find out the steel holding that too. So what else to do is where going. And if it's mass you want, if what you want is the almost silent whiff a woman waist make as she wind down low, and if you want the noise of a thousand woman waist whining same time, that quietness underneath the bamboo knocking, the steel have that too. So the steel is my master. The steel have that too. Roger Bernier Regard and Marilyn Nelson, thank you so much.
And Mark, I totally feel your pain about page poet is not something nobody wants to be. Academic is even worse, right? But I think if the series Page Meets Stage does nothing else, it disabuses people of the notion that slam poets don't really know how to write and that that other kind of poet doesn't really know how to perform well. See us at the Barry Poetry Club if you're ever in town. See us over there. Thank you very much. Have a great afternoon. Goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.